Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi guys, welcome back to Almost Famous. This is part two with my own brother, Tobias Slater, where he'll explain all about when he experienced fame himself with his band Catch in the late 90s. Hope you're enjoying it. Cheers. Moving on to your own experiences of um, fame, but you would say not fame, but you know, I'd, I'd slightly argue that being on top of the pop certainly gave you your 15 minutes, but moving on to your band and stuff, I'm really interested, not only because I don't know, but also because I think it's interesting for an audience to know how this stuff comes about. How did you go from being, you know, a kid who wrote songs and was interested in music to getting a record deal? What was the process, you know, in terms of getting those, getting your music into people's hands? How long did it take? What actually happened? I won't lie, family connections do make a difference. Okay. And they do play a part. So that's going to be part of the story. Um, I had been messing around with songs the whole time. So when I was at school, I wrote a Christmas song, which is on this BBC thing called Song for Christmas, which Gary Barlow from Take That had won one year. So I was, uh, you know, at the age of 12. And that actually may have played a part in my dislike of what was going on with Angus, our mum as well, because I think I was conscious of wanting to do my own stuff creatively and not, I think, not wanting to be muddled up in horrible, squabbly tabloid stuff. It's not to say that my music was in any way highbrow, uh, because it wasn't. It was very, very trite and silly. But um, it seems like you were aware, even at that age, though, that potentially, you know, it would be newsworthy if, say, you won that song for Christmas competition. It would be newsworthy for a paper to put those things together. I don't know if that's true, actually, because for some reason I did a bunch of weird things. Um, I also, at some point, because I've always loved animation, did Rolf's Cartoon Club. Oh, yeah, uh, God. And oh, I, my God. With with Stephanie being on Jimmy's Jim will fix it and you being Rolf's Cartoon Club, we've really covered all those... Oh yeah. Although I, I, you know, I think what we've learned over the past ten years or so is that there's barely anyone in the UK media who wasn't touched by uh, some of those characters, uh, whether touched by greatness or in in, in actuality. Um, so yeah, I I went on that, and it wasn't anything about fame. It was literally I don't know how it happened, whether I wrote into them or what. I remember us going to Bath or somewhere for that. Is that right? Yeah, I think it was filmed. I think it was sort of a local. Bristol or Bath or something. thing in Bristol or Bath yeah um and so I don't know if I was that deliberately aware I just know that I was creative I liked doing things and that was always my focus much more and do you think you wanted to be famous I think the um video uh of Michael Jackson on the MTV show where he had a f- fan go through his uh, Neverland ranch and everything was filmed in a sort of Vaseline smeared golden glow uh, definitely had an impact on me. I don't know if you remember we watched. I remember we had we had two videos. We had the VHS of of thrill, the making of Thriller. Yeah. And we had Michael Jackson. The story continues, which was a a. a a kind of a, a biog of Michael Jackson, I guess, and included the very famous Motown 25 performance where he first did um, uh, the moonwalk. Yeah, and I seem to remember there being an inter- interviews with all sorts of celebrity people and one of them being 
I think Catherine Hepburn or someone like that, he said, you know, if you want to find the boy next door, don't go and look at Michael Jackson because he ain't the boy next door. So I grew up with that, you know, that era of pop music being really front and centre and our neighbours took uh, me to see Michael Jackson on the Bad Tour at Milton Keynes Bowl where yeah. it was approximately two and a half Not me. To, the, to the stage. <laughs> yeah, you didn't go because, again, you were just rolling around in your Spurs kit <laughs> blankly. Um, yeah. but, but to be fair, I mean, to be fair, Angus would take me to football and you weren't interested in football. So, you know, makes sense, I guess. Um, yeah, although Angus liked football and music. That's true. That's true. Um, he was a big uh, fan of Genesis. Genesis yeah. Yeah. He liked Genesis. He also quite liked Marillion. Um, so I think that's a, that's a sort of prog rock thing going on. Um, uh, so anyways, so I got really into Michael Jackson, was, um, you know, went to that concert. And so that, you can't take that away. Like if you grow up in the 90s, 80s and 90s, and that is your idea of what pop music can be, it's hard to put that out of your head. That's not to say that that's um, in any way what I modeled myself on creatively because I just didn't bother that much. You know, the truth is that the amount of work that he did to get there is absolutely incredible. And I, I wasn't that, but I did like creating. I, and I would say that I like creating more for its own sake than as a, you know, than as a path to fame in its own right. I, I can't, you can't decouple them, but you know, I just enjoyed making things. So I was always, making uh tapes and that went on for ages um and then i started doing work experience at a company called hall or nothing which managed artists including the manic street preachers and also had its own pr department and they did press for artists including radiohead and was that through our sister it was. It was indeed. So that's the sort of when I say family connections, that was the first one that, you know, I was 13 or 14 wow. and I was cutting out uh, newspapers where there'd been articles and, and glued, gluing them onto sheets of paper and photocopying them. So, you know, if the band had a, a review or whatever, they would end up with a big uh, binder full of their photocopied reviews that they could look at. Right. So I was doing that kind of thing in my summer holidays and also writing and recording stuff. Eventually, uh, Martin Hall from that company said, you know, would you be interested in me recording some demos? And I did some demos with... Uh, so, so, but presumably you'd already played him some of your stuff at this point, had you? Yeah. and That's brave, no? How, how do you have that bravery? I definitely wouldn't have that bravery. I was very... I've already said earlier on, you know, that I was sort of hyperactive and a bit of a, an arse. And this period of my life, sort of teens, I was doing a bunch of stuff that in my head was just about establishing myself as a human being in my own right, that was away from all this stuff happening, both at home with Angus and our mum, and also in Surrey, where we grew up, you know, and at the quite sort of closed-minded, limited uh, parochial environment that, that we were in so I was going to London more I I was DJing and um co-promoting and what you know working to help put on uh, a, a night at Madame Jojo's which is a, a a nightclub and I was um doing stuff in the summer festivals working at the guest list boxes and I was hanging out at a, a club called Smashing where there were people like the performance artist Lee Bowery and it was a very dressed up and queer environment uh, with a host called Matthew Glamour, uh, who was a sort of almost like draggy performance artist kind of person. Uh, you know, I was also going to uh, mod clubs wearing suits. So, you know, I was just trying to experiment creatively with who I was and meeting people. That was very much an adult world uh, away from uh the sort of school and and family life and you think you were what like 14 15 at this point i remember yeah. bits i remember bits of this but again not ever putting two and two together or asking i guess what was going on i remember the suits i remember arcadia which is where you were djing but but the main memory i have is basically us dropping you off at woking station and my mum i think giving you a fiver 
to get the train yeah. basically yeah yeah exactly and um i had as i got a little older as well i had a, a friend from school who was also in um into sort of indie music and we would go and see pulp together or we'd go and see american um post-grunge bands um sadly he uh he died of cancer just after i left school but we would go to see concerts and then the classic thing of like missing the 105 a.m train back to woking and then either sitting on the platform or you know once i remember having to get a cab back and my mum was really furious Hmm. um but sometimes from that with him i'd end up um you know backstage so uh at one time we were at you know backstage and there was blur and another time it was um elastica you know even in a pub in windsor um so there were you know various kind of up and coming bands and so that's how this idea of me meeting other people and saying i'd like to form a band of my own that's where that started i'd been writing songs but then there's sort of uh nascent germ of an idea of maybe I've got a band and I went to one of those business card printing machines that they used to have in the 90s yeah on Guildford station uh, platform maybe on Guildford station yeah and I I put a quid in there and typed out that I was in this band called Brattish b-r-a-t-t-i-s-h um that I didn't even come up with that name I think someone else had said it uh and there was some sort of slogan on it and my name so I would give those out to people and I think the idea of this cocky kid was intriguing to some people. And later on, there's a book uh, called Kill Your Friends yeah. by John Newton, And he refers to this era. I think he's referring it to, you know, there's all these, I think the bar was really low, basically, and that anyone who you know had a halfway decent look and a demo tape could sort of get signed. And uh, Hold on, a bit of self-deprecation there, I think. I mean, all of all of. Firstly, everything you've described is so abnormal to me. I mean, to me, and I think to any normal person at that age who would just be like, you know, so afraid of showing their creativity to anyone, let alone, you know, because also, I think it only matters in terms of giving the audience a, a visual. You know, you were a young-looking fifteen, sixteen. You weren't a big, yeah. big adult like the kids were when I went to my second school. And, no, yeah. you know, traipsing round southeast of England, giving out business cards to people who were already in the business. This, it's not like anyone could do this. That This is like a proper balls out, brave thing that I can't even imagine. Sometimes as well, like, I, yeah, I was really young looking. Um, these days you would say I was misgendered frequently. Um, so, you know, I, I, I looked very effeminate and very androgynous at best. I was frequently misgendered. Um, and I also wore, uh, really gay clothes. So, you know, I, I remember once we were, you and I were at a HMV or something and I had a really tight, uh, t-shirt on and some guys sort of shouted at me. Yeah. And I used to get that on Woking Station all the time because I'd be wearing like a frock coat or something, some sort of antique 1900s edwardian trousers and people would frequently come and say stuff i think the fact that i looked like a girl meant that it would be really stupid of them to actually punch me because they'd look pathetic like anyone can go and punch a small child that looks like a girl um so i think i got away with some of the more risque things i remember being in the queue to a club once and someone said what are you the fucking count de monte cristo because <laughs> i was there with like a, a furry cape on that I'd got from a you know charity shop and woke quite a good line. Um, Do you know what? Now that you now that you repeated it though, I've suddenly got that anxious feeling in my stomach because I totally forgotten that story of the HMV. It was HMV on Oxford Street. I really now I really remember it, and I got an anxious I got such an anxious feeling when that happened that they were abusing you, and that neither of us could do anything about it. And I was afraid, but also like that feeling of don't say that to my brother. I think these days, people who are creative in the same way would probably be doing it on YouTube or Instagram or TikTok, you know, and I think maybe there's a little bit of safety behind the screen, but they will still be receiving those comments from those same people. Yeah. You know, so occasionally when the nights are long and I'm feeling uh, very masochistic, I'll go and look at some of the work that I've done on YouTube that people have uploaded and all of the comments are just massively homophobic and, you know, a lot of them are really funny, but 
you know, that person who just wants to shout at you because you look the wrong way, um, they're all over the internet. And I think that, you know, 14 year olds these days will be creating their stuff, but they're on YouTube channels or they're on TikTok or, or whatever. There's actually a guy on Instagram who's got an account where he teaches people how to sell candy in their playground. Right. That doesn't sound good. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, that there are there are people out there now that they probably don't have to do quite as much kind of networking in real life. You can probably spend more of your time bonding by doing a, a video reply to someone else's, but it's the same process. Yeah. And actually, the danger is, you know, that if you're big now on YouTube or TikTok, you can be in the media within days. You know, yeah. whereas that's that. Yes, there were a few mentions of our my made up band, uh, for sure, um, but they were in like you know obscure music magazines and not you know all over every website in the world. Okay, and so how did we get from business card to yeah. record deal? So again, like I said, we were in an era when if you had a halfway decent look and a song or two, you could get a record deal. And there were loads of examples of this because it was the tail end, as I was saying. Menswear. <laughs> yeah, so so basically it was the tail end of the period where music was selling gangbusters. You know, CDs were huge and record labels were doing a thing where uh, you could buy the single as a CD, but you could also buy it as a tape and as a vinyl and sometimes as two more CDs. So yeah. that was a way of getting it into the charts at a really high level. So sometimes if you're a fan, like I, you know, would buy not just one, but two CDs uh, so you could get all the B-sides. And so, yeah, there were bands that were in the kind of Britpop vein. And the most notorious of these was, was Menswear, who I was fairly friendly with. In fact, I used to, during this era, sort of scout for their record label. Um, you know, they were the epitome of a band that just looked great and had a couple of songs and the record label would pay you to do that would they well actually it was a bit of a scam <laughs> they the guy was like i you know i want you to bring me recommended tracks and tapes and stuff and then i will give you uh money but you've got to um deliver like receipts and and, and taxis so i can put it through my expenses right expenses scam expenses scam basically <laughs> um and so, yeah, so Menswear were the most notorious, uh, but there were loads of these bands that got signed. And there was this big kind of burst in the Britpop era um, of, of artists getting signed, some for huge amounts of money, because with Catch, we got signed um, for £200,000. Um, and it was the sense that, you know, records are huge. If you, if you, if you fail that's okay because there's another you know 900 bands just like this and this was the era when you know 90% of music industry signings failed but on the 10% they could do really well um so i was sending i was recording loads of stuff we developed a, a, a band martin hall from hall or nothing was paying for us to rehearse in a really stinky sweaty smoke filled because uh, it was when people did still smoke indoors studio in Forest Acton. And he kept on saying, you know, this song isn't good enough. This song isn't good enough. And we never got to the point where he thought any of the songs were good enough. Uh, but eventually our sister agreed to pass on, Tracy agreed to pass on one of my tapes to uh, Stannard and Rowe, who were the producers of Spice Girls. Um, yeah. Wannabe by the Spice Girls, which her husband, Mark, had mixed. And so bear in mind, our management had repeatedly said, you don't have any songs that are good enough. You need to keep going. So I kept going, kept going. And they, the producers of the Spice Girls, latched onto this one song called Bingo, and they thought it was brilliant. So we still didn't have any songs that our management were, were good, thought were good. But now we had some champions in the shape of these number one worldwide smash producers. So they then played it to... Uh, someone at London Records who had All Saints um, and had a long, you know, quite... Uh, big roster. You yeah. know, it's quite huge reputation. Yeah, yeah, and they also played it to someone at, at, at Virgin Records who had the Spice Girls. So we had instant interest 
and um, I think to, I think Ma Martin Hall, with his reputation with the Manic Street Preachers, was able to sort of create a bit of a bidding war situation. And this again, bear in mind, he didn't think we had the song still, and we hadn't done touring. We hadn't really worked out what our sound was specifically. We just knew that, you know, I knew that I wanted to be a kind of hybrid of pop bands. Um, whether it's sort of like 80s pop bands like ABC or current day, you know, boy bands sort of melded with Britpop music, the, you know, light pulp. And what what made you, I think it's really interesting because I have a memory of, of of being that being described to me as to as what you were going for. But I also think you, in terms of your talent as a songwriter, are quite a um, more of like a... Um, piano-based, almost more of like a melancholic Jeff Buckley, Tom Yorkey, uh, I don't know, I don't know how you'd describe it, but um, piano-based ba piano ballad writer in general. Maudlin, sort of uh, morbid. <laughs> well, basically, all the, mu all the music I love, to be honest, the kind of music that I love, and there's definitely a, a huge audience for, so I'm kind of intrigued as to what made what made you want to go down the pop route? Um, I think the songs that I was writing earlier generally were a bit more quirky and Britpoppy. Um, but I've always had this huge range of stuff that I listen to. So yes, I absolutely love Joni Mitchell. I think she is probably the finest songwriter, you know, or, or, or in sort of singer-songwriter uh, area. Um, and she, her stuff kind of you know, I find my music sounding like her stuff occasionally when I'm writing. And I think also the, the, the medium that you use to write or to record makes a big difference. So if I'm playing on a piano, it will sound very like a kind of uh, moribund white boy uh, Radiohead style ballad. Um, but when you take a band to it, you start doing it at a different tempo, it will start sounding different. And I think a lot of the other material that I did was more quirky. And I knew that you know, this was this was before Jeff Buckley had become like a legendary thing. This was before people had rediscovered Nick Drake through TV adverts. And I think it was more an era of a really vast amount of quite dire pop music. And I had a sense that that's what needed to be done. Um, I think there's almost a sense that like of a, you know, they talk about the kind of difficult second, al second album or sophomore something. There's almost a sense that you have to do some um, more mainstream material before you were permitted by record labels to do stuff which was more introspective. Uh, um, Got it. So I think I was playing that game a bit, but also that's you know that's what I was influenced by. You know, I I, I was really I did love Pulp and and Alaska and a lot of those um, Britpop artists because that was the music right at the cusp of my teenagedom, having grown up on Michael Jackson. Uh, and all of the sort of classics and you know Beatles and David Bowie and all that stuff that was around growing up and all the 80s stuff, Duran Duran and Ultravox even that we talked about, Go West, you know, pivoting into the stuff which I was exposed to during my childhood. So that came out, you know, that sort of grit poppiness. And then there's just a cynical thing, which is like, this is an idea. Um, and then later on, some other bands went on to do that idea. So after Catch, there was a band called the Dum Dums. And then after them, there was Busted, who I think got their closest. Um, but we were amongst the first trying to do it, this sort of hybrid of guitar band and, and pop band. And so, so actually just the middle bridging bit is that Martin Hall um, also, you know, he was a big part of it because he, you know, he had sort of nurtured my creativity throughout those periods between when I was doing the um, the working, at, you know, on, cutting on stuff sticking, out, sticking things together. Yeah. So props to him as well. Um, and then, uh, oh, and then, okay. So then I did my A levels and age seventeen, straight after finishing my A levels, just left home, and within a few weeks had found a little bed sit and went on the dole and had housing benefit back when it was easy to do that and just 
started networking like crazy and going out and recording lots and you know really focusing hard that was you know that was another ingredient really i'm jumping about time wise but i think that aspect is so hard these days to do that bit which was really key which was having some time when i you know i knew that my rent was paid for because i was on the dole and on the housing benefit and i wasn't being pushed you know um and actually maybe that's something that I feel has come back again in this brief period because of Corona times that yeah. thousands and thousands of people, whether they're creative or not, have just been told by the government, here's universal credit. Sorry. Um, yeah. Here's universal credit. We're giving you this money. We're not going to question it too hard. We're not going to check. You don't have to come into the center, all of that stuff. Um, and while it's been a horrendously you know, uh, disempowering time for so many people. I do wish that there were things like universal basic income that would just allow people to have that breathing space to do their thing for a little while without having to turn up at a job center every couple of weeks and beg and go and get a, you know, uh, a minimum wage or, or a sort of zero hours job. Yeah. Um, I think the flip side of that is a lot of people would say, you know, if you want to be creative, get yourself a job and do it in your own time. But uh, I, you know, I completely agree with you. And I think you should be, you know, I think there should be ways in which you can chase your creativity and, and find a, w a way to do it that way. But it's not always as simple as that. I'm, I, you know, I'm saying that I wouldn't have got to the next stage very easily without um, having that breathing space. And we're not talking about vast amounts of money. I didn't live in luxury or anything like that. You know, it's it, it wasn't, um, you know, I was living in a, in a weird building with, you know, maybe 30 families. It was a, I remember it being slightly like a crackdown. It, yeah, the guy who lived next door to me was a heroin addict, like an active um, using heroin addict who would borrow tinfoil for me regularly. And there, we had... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Several bed bugs outbreaks. Um and you know it was just it was a strange place, but it 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 allowed me to just sit and do that thing. Um, yeah. And and I think just trying to connect to our present days, you know, I hope that there are other people right now who are able to just about pay the rent and just about eat because um, I know things are hard, but maybe you know do do a thing which they want to do. 
um, because I think lately the music industry and creativity has got so focused on you've got to, whoever you are, you've got to create something that's incredibly commercial um, and absolutely laser precision focused um, on making hits and you've got to collaborate with three other artists and have 19 songwriters on your track, you know? Yeah. It's a big ask these days. It is. And so I'm intrigued to know in terms of then, you know, you talked about the bidding war and then in terms of the feeling when you actually presumably at some point go into an office with a record label and sign that deal, which I guess must be like the, you know, the goal, the goal really for, for all those years before, like how did that feel and, and what was, what was it like? Yeah. Although when you say all those years before, you know, I have to be honest, it still was a bit like walking blindly, naively into this thing, feeling like, um, you know, I somehow deserved it, but in reality it was all a matter of, you know, happenstance and family connections and, the fact that the industry was at this very fervent time of kind of hot, you know, desire to find the next thing. Um, So, you know, it felt to me at the time like, oh, this is perfectly natural. We're going to get the record deal and then we're going to make an album and, uh, you know, it'll be successful and then we'll go on to the next achievement um, because it, you know, it was just a classic... um, sort of deluded assumptions um, that had been reinforced by not only what I'd seen in family, but also, like I said, what was in the media and that sort of, uh, I think, mythology around sort of pop stardom that I think was around a lot. Um, One thing I want to point out, though, is that the record company check was regular sized. It was not a giant check. (laughs) And also... also, That's ruined my vision I just remembered as well another story, which is that our dad, I think he signed a band called the Inspiral Carpets. Do you remember them? Yeah, he did, yeah. And their logo, they were like a sort of Manchester band. And their logo was a cow, like an illustrated cow. He kept on talking. I remember sometime we saw him. He was he wanted to write, he wanted to get a cow and paint a check onto it so that the cow became a giant check. And he wanted to hand that, over... That sounds like a good idea. He wanted to hand over... The, the giant check here you are and, I do, and then I imagine like him trying to herd the cow I mean and then I imagine Peter coming through and being like this is cruelty um anyway so we yeah it all felt natural but um how did it feel it just felt like how it should be but that's really just where the hard work starts you know um and that's also where all the sort of problems start because I think in that era when people were signing artists with no proof or evidence that they were actually capable, um, things got really out of hand. I don't think things are like that anymore, to be honest. Um, But I think uh, there was, you know what? I was listening to this thing uh, as a podcast that some guys made. Some people like sent me this thing. You need to listen to this. And it's like these like metal fans reviewing a bunch of records and then for some reason they review the catch record and they tell this anecdote about how apparently we burnt through like a million quid of virgins money now i don't know how much because they don't easily show you that um and also the marketing money um which is you know the stuff that's spent on videos and photos that that side was not something we had to pay for but what we would have to pay for is all the recording stuff of, of of the records and the orchestra that we had on one of the track and all of that. And I know that we did spend a lot of money, but I don't know if it's a million. And I also don't know where they heard that it was a million. Um, but it was clearly enough for some random people who are on the, in the music industry to hear about it. Um, so I guess even before we'd released anything, we were probably already getting a bad reputation in the music industry. But also, they also that was the podcast that said that we recorded the worst song ever made and how did and how did it feel watching that um i was you know what i was this was only a couple of months ago i think like last year i was tickled pink like i couldn't believe that anyone remembered the track or that they would sit down and like talk about it um for you know 10 minutes or whatever and they they said that it one of them said that it kind of the song um bingo made them feel sort of icky and uncomfortable 
and not everything that they said about the track was stuff that I think was completely true and accurate and fair and I would probably agree with um and it's kind of a weird honor you know to to make people feel anything I think yes yes that's true I mean you know all attention is good attention to some degree but if it's good to you know I guess you know you've your skin is thick enough to deal with that now although admittedly it was what we're talking you know 23 years ago something like that yeah so, yeah that's yeah. a load of time I mean, test I think, of time i think i think um it helps that that song and some others of the, of the songs that i did and that we did you know it is a naturally playful song and it was deliberately camp and i am massively into camp um so you know i think that helps as well you know it's not like if it there were there are lots of other songs I've done which are a lot more serious and if people were saying that that was those ones were the worst songs ever made um I think then I maybe a bit more hurt so you mentioned um that then the problems started I mean without going into it in you know all the depth that there would that we could I'm sure what you know why why didn't it work out like you got to I think bingo got to number was it 23 you're on top of the pops yeah uh, obviously um like it's I said scraped you scraped into top of the pops scraped into top of the pops but then you know you, you had a lot of press actually to be fair and then also like I said in the intro you were quite successful in Thailand and Indonesia but in general looking back on it you know what why do you think it didn't reach the level of of success that you wanted um so I guess I well I guess there's there's two there's two major ingredients when it comes to pop hit one is you know the record and the the band and the whole kind of confection of you as a as an artist and as a band and then the other bit is the the music business and the record company and the politics of it so those bits have all got to be right you know like so all of the creative bits of the music and the artistry and the image have got to be right and also it's got to be the right time for it and the record company have got to be behind it now we had all of those bits in play for the first record but when bingo didn't hit as huge as they'd hoped um despite us having the two cds um with the four different b-sides um i think that you know the record company had its the wind out of its sales a bit and then you know we had like the the people who are our champions at the record label moved on and it was a lot harder and we were just literally left our own devices we just then recorded an album with the producers didn't turn up a lot of the time the uh, the record company never listened to it as far as i was aware really we had you know we just sort of passed through different iterations of of record company um is this is this a bit like a kind of taylor's oldest time what people say when it doesn't work out though <laughs> because like i you know you know i've heard a lot of musicians talk about oh you know when they've had those opportunities oh their a&r men moved on or uh, these little things it, you know do you genuinely feel that's it or that are there things mistakes you feel you made for instance as well yeah 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 oh yeah i'm not like we could talk for eight for hours about the mistakes that i've made um so that's like i said they're the both parts of it right so you've you know if 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 we'd made a consistent coherent album where all of my song bear in mind i said that our manager said that we didn't have enough good songs right and i think that was probably still the case but definitely what was a problem is that we didn't have like a coherent consistent bunch of songs that all fit together and i was you know um just having fun like in the studio um we you know we worked with a bunch of different people so we end up with a bunch of different tracks which sounded different and on some of them it was a kind of huge orchestral thing some others had more electronic instrumentation you know and they were recorded at a bunch of different times so that part of it which was our responsibility was all over the place and then the image didn't quite sort of hit home you know although we had a, a day's confused cover shot by Rankin and although we were in both the kind of newspapers like the times and we were also in melody maker and we were also in smash hits which was sort of the dream um i don't think the public really liked it that much and i think arguably we were neither the um kind of we were at the sort of arse end of boy band 
we were on the same label as nine one 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 yeah nine one one turned out to be an uncomfortable name um <laughs> and um, best press they got we, uh, yeah, and we were also not a cool artist, uh, like you know, uh, not even a sort of kitschy cool artist like 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 Pulp. So we would we were sort of neither of those things. We definitely had our fans, but I think generally people were probably just like, "What the fuck?" Um, Slightly fell between two stools. We fell between two stools, and I think then because we didn't have a sort of consistent, coherent album, um, we we definitely had songs that. I really like and that people really like. But I think, you know, in the absence of that, people just didn't know what to do with us. And yeah, and I, I think you do need a champion at record label who's going to say, I'm responsible for this. I'm going to listen to all their music. I'm going to, you know, put them together with this producer or whatever. Um, but we weren't, the other thing is, you know, this was an era of manufactured bands. And I remember there being some review that said we were a manufactured band. Partially, that was the problem. We weren't a manufactured band. We were self-manufactured. And I think if, you know, there had been a lot of direction or sort of uh, cynical planning, um, we things might be different. But actually, we had Virgin gave us quite a lot of creative freedom. Um, and, you know, we did put a fair few bits of our own um, thinking into things. I spoke to um, Chesney Hawks on this podcast, and he talked about, he talked about how when he was dropped by his record label, they didn't even tell him and they weren't answering his calls. Did you, you know, is that a reality? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, that sounds very familiar. I don't think you get told um, directly, like a meeting where someone says, we're about to drop you. It's very much more like you're ghosted. Um, so it's kind of more like, you know, these days you'd probably you know, you'd probably be told in a WhatsApp thread, I would guess. Um, and then I remember, I remember being like, um, pretty gutted because the record company's meant to be um, like storing all your stuff sort of securely and so that you can kind of, you know, access those tracks or any of the, the merchandise you had or the props you'd had or whatever. Um, and um, I think Martin and our lawyer negotiated for us to get the rights to all that stuff back, the thinking being that we could then sort of sign to another label, but they'd lost a lot of it as well, which made me sort of think like, oh, we've moved offices, but we don't really care about this band. So who knows where their stuff goes, we'll just throw it out. Um, so um, I think there is that sense of, it's easy to blow up and for people to think that like the career of an artist or a band is more important than it is. I think it only starts to count once you are actually successful, you know, um, things might've changed now cause this was a long time ago, but yeah, Chesney, I mean, Chesney Hawks had a huge, huge number one. He was the one and only. Yeah. He still is the one and only. Um, how did, so then, you know, when eventually the ghosting came to fruition and you knew you were dropped, how did that affect you and how, and your mental health and how did you bounce back i don't know if i ever did bounce back to be honest i think um i so i think bear in mind that you know there were two other guys in in catch and i think um they both uh, ben and wayne had been sort of pulling in other directions um and wanted to do other sorts of music and i had been writing a load of other stuff that didn't really fit in with catch anyway so I think I think all of us were sort of um trying to do something different and I had been spending a lot of time in America um and starting to sort of play acoustic stuff in coffee shops over there and it was the beginning of the kind of mp3 revolution where Napster was beginning to happen and there was just a sense that the internet was going to be a thing um and I wanted to be part of that. So I don't know if I ever sort of bounced back because I, I wasn't really sure that I wanted to do a big major record label thing again. Um, Did you have opportunities to go elsewhere? Was that a thing? Um, I think to do that, you'd, it's almost like a kind of uh, war campaign. You know, you just kind of have to put, you know, you'd have to kind of assemble your troops and go back in there again. Um, but certainly I recorded 
stuff that was paid for by a number of other labels and worked with a bunch of other songwriters over the years, you know, many of whom were, you know, either very successful then or have gone on to become very successful now. So I certainly had a, a lot of skirmishes um, with stuff that was sort of paid for by record labels. And I had an indie single that was paid for by a, you know, by a, a small indie label. Um, uh, and and also had stuff, you know, that was funded by other interesting places like Napster promoted a thing that ended up being downloaded hundreds of thousands of times from their service. And uh, I put out a video that even before YouTube was downloaded all over the internet and streamed, you know, in, even before YouTube existed. And now someone else has put on YouTube. So there's sort of all sorts of, creative and weird stuff going but I knew that I didn't really want to do the traditional major label pop band thing again and I wanted to see what was going to happen like whether that journey was something that you had to do or whether there would be other routes to distribute music right and then and so looking back on those times you know with the benefit of hindsight and not having kind of gone back into music and now being more in the event space do you think you should have tried gone a different way tried again is it something you wish you'd done in a different way do you wish you were making a career out of music now how does that all come together um i feel like i was lucky to sort of be making music at a time when top of the pops existed you know and and that you could do um as we did you know you could put out a track and be all over music TV because again that was really huge you know um, at the time and now is a very different era and I, I was just on that cusp and I think in order to have been to continue at the sort of level of pop success that I was aiming for then would probably have involved doing things like you know Big Brother or you know having to become more of a, a celebrity for its own sake um, yeah because I wasn't really dealing with the, I wasn't the kind of cool artist who was, um, you know, had credibility. I don't think that's going to come back very easily. You know, it's quite hard to, when you've when you've done something that is deliberately, knowingly out and out cheesy, it's quite hard to kind of say, actually, I'm a, a cool, credible artist. But See, I think that's quite a shame because I actually think your best music is really cool and credible. But I just enjoy making music. And so, yeah, some of the catch stuff that's the best stuff, you know, which is quite typical for bands, are our B-sides. And uh, there are even some people online who've kind of made blogs where they've sort of pieced together all the tracks that we had and they've put together, like, their favourite compilations. And some of those tracks are, are B-side tracks. And I just like making music for its own sake. So I think... Um, tangling with some of the more uh out and out pop stuff that was going on and the kind of celebrity making was probably not for me um but probably because of what you experienced as a kid i would have thought yeah maybe um but i think a lot of musicians would say the same thing right that they want they that a lot of people will say and it's a bit of a cliche you know that they're happy for fame to come as a byproduct of their um creativity um uh, and it's a bit of a cliche book and, it, and it's not entirely true because I think there's a, a mix of motivations but I think I'm still very much in that camp where I, I, I really love it when someone talks about having enjoyed my music or remembering a particular track or whatever um, that that there is fulfillment in there and I'm definitely still up for that um, but when I was invited to do uh, never mind the buzzcocks in the round where uh you yeah, know the lineup they stand people up the lineup you know i definitely was like no thank you and our mum has been invited on that as well i believe why didn't she agree to do that i don't know um i think i think they only offer a few hundred quid don't they well they did i think they do i think i mean if they gave you know exactly some sort of incentive which was a bit more exciting so I want to just, uh, it's been an amazing chat, really fascinating to me. I hope for the audience as well, in terms of giving an insight, certainly into growing up around Vane, but also... An, Another failed musician. But, but but also an insight into, you know, I mean, this 
podcast isn't about the literal meaning of almost famous, but in terms of getting that record deal and the push and and how close that you know I guess it it works on a literal level as well. I just wanted to ask then in terms of how close you got and stuff. You know, could you pinpoint any any regrets like proper big regrets that you think could have changed things and and meant that now instead of where you are and I'm not suggesting you're unhappy with where you are but instead you would be a you know successful probably credible singer songwriter who had a pop past you know what George Michael became for instance after Wham. <laughs> oh my god George Michael you mean who died ignominiously and had a very depressed end of his life had an amazing career had started in a pop band and became an incredibly successful yeah. you know artist famous artist for his songwriting genius i love george michael and also wham were huge and he wrote careless whisper when he was like 12 or something um i think i i, I just feels incredible to ne- mention anything on that scale i think i would then and now be happy with making music that you know gets heard i think i think you know we would talk a good talk and say we'd like to make an album which is as big as the lexicon of love by abc or you know like a huge successful album i think in reality you know making a career that continues where you're able to um produce music that people hear and that impacts people that is what most uh songwriters want and that's what i wanted at the time and yes that would still be really appealing you know if there was a way of doing that um i think the problem is that there's so much uh so many barriers in front of people just listening to a song and there are also so many songs out there uh that often in the music business it feels like when someone's listening to your song they're just not listening to it in its own right and sometimes the very things like i remember we i wrote this um co-wrote this song with an American songwriter, and it had this line in it about um, seeing someone standing at a Chinese barbecue. And the record company person came back and said, well, of course, that'll never be a hit because it's got that line in it. And I just sort of felt like so many songs that I love have bizarre lyrics in them. And that's a constant battle that I wasn't really, that's the part of it that I didn't enjoy, um, is it's sort of non-constructive criticism. Um, and uh, Ironically, the part that our father was probably having to do for his job for many years. Yeah, that's true, actually, because he, he worked as an A&R person for a record company and he probably said stupid things to people all the time. Um, but, you know, so it's I would I would have liked to, to continue working and making music, um, but you also have to get to a point where you're, you're settled and successful enough that people are engaging with you creatively and listening to your staff and offering new suggestions. And that, you know, that's, that is quite a privileged position to get to that part. Um, and I think a lot of that now it's probably even harder. Like I said, you know, there's probably a lot of pressure on artists now to be working with really top producers and songwriters and, and creating these laser focused tracks because again, there's, unlimited stuff on soundcloud and youtube and spotify that you can listen to if you want but to get above that noise is really hard so i i don't know if i have that many regrets um because i i still am creative and that's what i really love doing in different ways Um, and i still write songs and i still record songs occasionally um yeah uh it's yeah i mean i mean from from my point of view like i've you know if i'm going to be totally honest about it it's like i've have always been envious of the fact that you had you know and and this isn't just me being biased I'm a music fan as well I mean it's probably hard to see through the bias I suppose but or for other people to look and see through the bias but I think you have an undoubted talent that I've always been incredibly envious of that you had this thing when you were in, that you knew from very young that you wanted to do and then you had all the kind of um the journey the positive feedback the the reality that it so close to getting to where you wanted it to be uh, or to the career that you wanted to have and a little bit I guess it frustrates me that you're not doing that anymore because it's such a kind of a, a you're so good at it in my opinion that you should be just you know if possible just doing it doing it still getting it out there putting it into people's into people's hands in the way you were right at the start because I'm so sure you're you know even even if, if at this point it's just 
I say just, but writing for other people. It's yeah. I mean, I still I I have over the years continued to co-write with people and continue to occasionally perform, and I still love doing that. Um, I think it just also comes up against capitalism, like I was saying earlier on about the, you know, the universal credit thing. It's like if someone can devote themselves wholeheartedly without having to worry about how to pay the rent or pay for their food, then yes, I would definitely be doing that. But it is, you know, it is a really hard journey. And so anyone who does succeed, no matter how crap or cheesy their music might be, you know, they have probably had to work a fair bit under today's um, environment. Comparatively, though, when I was, you know, in the late 90s walking into catch, you know, we really did get a lot of it handed on our plate and it didn't take that same degree of effort. Does that make sense? It does, like but I, it, it does. I but again, like I'd argue it, it does. But again, I'd argue that you know what you don't look back on as effort in terms of spending three, four, five years going into London every night. You know, having your balls out, saying I'm going to be this, I'm going to be that. That is more effort than most people have put in in their in their lives in terms of self promotion, which I find very, very difficult. You know, what I would give as a comparison is which I find really inspiring is uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote yeah. Hamilton. Yeah. Um, he publishes on his Twitter account his rejection rejection notes. And before he wrote Hamilton, he wrote this uh, musical called In the Heights. And he applied to various funds and grants and bodies, some of whom were like, you know, the leading things in musical theatre or they were founded by people he was really inspired by. And he's just got several rejection letters for a work which is now a Disney movie, you know, that, that has been made, um, you know, In the Heights has been, I think it's Disney, or it's, it's, it's a Hollywood movie anyway. And it's, it's, it's very much the same style, a similar sort of style as Hamilton. The actual work itself is really good, and yet it was getting rejected left, right and centre. And he did have to keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. And then he also did, you know, a bunch of other stuff you can really hear how good it is. And it, it it's a reminder that you sort of think that people come fully formed, but they're having to continue working. And he was doing, you know, a day job at the same time as that. It's, you know, it's a lot. If anyone is offering to, um, you know, to, to sort of uh, payroll me through and also do that other bit, the kind of sh- helping shape something to actually get it into a shape where, it's you know it's listenable as well because I'm not a I'm not a music producer. That's another aspect as well that I think um, you know. In addition to that, you can listen to the Hamilton demos, right? And they're very very different to the finished pro- process. It's a whole other bit of work that needs to go in. Hmm. So I would love to be doing all of that stuff. Um, I, I don't know necessarily whether I would want to ever do it in exchange for because I like doing all of the various creative projects that I do. Sure. It's been a ra- an amazing chat. Once again, wh- I want to give you an opportunity to plug your stuff. Uh, is there anywhere, would you be interested in the audience going somewhere to try and hear some of your music? And if so, which which songs, which tracks, where would they go? Which tracks would you recommend? And then also, obviously, the events that you're doing. Uh, yeah, and I guess you can link to this, can't you, on your I can, social? I can put it in my social and I can put it at the, um, at the bottom in the description yeah. box. Um, so I've got some stuff that I've just put up for free of my music on SoundCloud. So if you looked Tobias Fauntleroy Slater, um, Fauntleroy is not my real name. It's just good for search engine optimization. Um, <laughs> okay. So Tobias and, Fauntleroy Slater on SoundCloud. Great. I've got a load of stuff there. And, um, also if you want to listen to catch stuff, people have uploaded all sorts of videos and audio on YouTube. Uh, and I think, I think some, yeah, I think you can sort of search or go to Wikipedia and people link to it. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of the events that I do, if you look up the summerhouseweekend.com forward slash events or just find out a little bit more about us, follow us there. Okay, brilliant. Uh, I've really enjoyed the chat. Um, guys, at home, thank you so much for listening. Please do press that subscribe button on Almost Famous, rate the podcast and leave us a comment too. Find us on Instagram at Almost Famous the Podcast and on Twitter at Pod Almost Famous. I'll make sure to put some of my brother's links on there. Hope you enjoyed the chat and thanks again for listening. Goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.